You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Gators Breakdown, the Gators Fan Podcast, because there's never a dull moment in Gator Nation. Gators Breakdown, episode 130, is ready to go. I am your host, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter, at GatorDave underscore SCC, and joining me tonight, the founder of ReadAndReaction.com is Will Miles. You can find all his latest articles there, and you can find him on Twitter at Will Miles SEC. Will, have you recovered from uh, National Signing Day yet? Yeah, you know, I mean, we had the Dorian Gerald announcement on Friday, and and sort of, National Signing Day just sort of felt like a dud, because there were only 20% of the guys signing, so um, yeah, it, it was a good time. It's always a good time. Added a lot of good guys to the team, and uh, and I'm excited to talk a little bit more about it, and sort of what that means for the season coming up. Absolutely, and I think it took a little bit out of me, but most importantly, I guess a lot out of Bill because he can't join us this week. So, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I'll, the wheels were spinning for Bill. He's probably out fishing tonight or something. He, he's he's enjoying his return to Florida, and I, I can't blame him. I got to tell you, it's still cold up here. It's not that bad, but it's still cold up here. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, these are the times today is towards the end of February where you're longing to be back in Florida, I'll tell you that much. Absolutely. And, uh you know, in in the uh, private message, you know, Bill's calling you uh, Mr. Negativity. <laughs> well, you know, there has to be some balance when you got somebody pumping sunshine so bad on the other side. So, uh, you know. He used, to, he used to be known as the non-sunshine bumper. Well, you know, I mean, it's interesting because one of the things last week I wrote a National Signing Day recap and one of, I was accused of being negative in there and maybe rightfully so, but you know, you look at all the numbers and Mullen's initial class looks His initial transition class looks really good compared to the other, compared to the other coaches, um, McElwain excluded, but man, it could have been so fantastic if he could have gotten a couple of more guys. And that's sort of, I think where, where my disappointment lies. And you know, it, it, it doesn't mean I think Mullen's a bad coach. It just means like, geez, having a couple of those guys who would be ready to step in day one is, is something that uh, would have been really exciting. Absolutely, and, we, and, we, and we'll get to that uh, later on in this show. Remember, you can find Gators Breakdown on newsforjacks.com, Channel 4's website. Uh, you can catch uh, all the Gators Breakdown episodes there as they'll, they'll help us start promoting uh, the episodes and all that good stuff. And you can still find it on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube, whichever way you prefer. And also, we're, uh, when you're on iTunes, please rate review the show. And you can find the show also uh, the, the social media accounts on Twitter and on Facebook at Gators 
breakdown. So we'll, you know, we've had some some time to uh, digest uh, this re- this signing day class, this last recruiting class for the Gators. What we like, what we don't like about the class, uh, and I wanted to see how the class stacked up uh, against rivals by more than just looking at the overall class rankings. Now, what happened? With the top tier players, what you know? What about the the top players in the state of Florida? You know, using these parameters, uh, this class for the Gators was not that far off from from most of the rivals, looking better in some aspects and worse than and worse than others. Uh, the first one I'll get to is position rankings and how many top ten and how many top twenty players at their position did the Gators and their rivals sign? And you might remember I did this for Florida last week when we did our signing day show. So I'll refresh uh, everyone uh, on that stat. The Gators signed 19 total players. Five were top 10 at their position. Uh, that was Emory Jones, Richard Garage, Damian Pierce, Kyle Pitts, and Evan McPherson. And, and 13 were top 20 at their position. You know, add eight to the five that were just mentioned. Uh, Amari Bernie, Trey Dean, Iverson Clement, Jacob Copeland, Justin Watkins, Andrew Chatfield, David Reese, and Malik Langham. Uh, I did not count JUCO players uh, in this for Florida or any of the other teams. So, you know, five of um, five were top ten at their position. Thirteen were top twenty at their position out of the nineteen total players. So now, how does that stack up with Florida's main rivals? And I'll probably have to start with the bad first <laughs> and get that out of the way. Georgia's top ranked class is ridiculous using these parameters of getting the top tier players. Out of their 26 signees, they have five that were the top-ranked recruit at their position. Quarterback with Justin Fields, running back with Zemir White, also the top-ranked offensive guard, outside linebacker, and punter. Of their 26 signees, 16 were rated top five at their position. 17 were top 10. Will, that's how you build an elite roster. Oh, man, you're not kidding. I mean, <laughs> last week I mentioned they had 12 top 100 guys nationally. That's, you know, that's loading the cupboards. And Kirby did it last year, too. And there's a reason they were in the national championship game. And, you know, everybody's been chasing Saban for a while. And and Kirby almost caught up to him this past year. And, you know, we'll see whether, you know, the Alabama recruiting class fell a little bit. And we'll see whether Georgia can catch them. And, and you know, hey, if you're going to if you're going to win the SEC, you're going to have to beat the best. And so Georgia's in our division and, you know, they're building a pretty big beast over there. And so Mullen's going to have to catch up. So um, it'll be exciting to see how he does that. You know, I, I think one of the nice things is. I think we can be pretty confident that Tennessee, Georgia, and Florida are going to put together a pretty nice rivalry. And it's been one of those things where it's, the East has been the ugly duckling for a while now, and winning the East wasn't really good enough for Florida fans. And that won't be the case now because uh, the East is getting stronger. Yeah, you know, and I've said this about recruiting many times. You know, of course, you can only put 22 guys on, on the field at the same time. Uh, but, you know, look at Georgia's depth, and we've mentioned it before. When one guy goes down, it looks like they're going to be able to fill him in uh, with a with another top rated recruit that that you know, just waiting to sit on the bench here, but I just couldn't believe you know five top players that were number one ranked at their position, and you know it's sixteen that were rated top five, so only ten of their players were not rated top five at their position. Yeah, how could they take those guys? I mean, you know, like what were they thinking taking these guys who are just rated four stars? I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't get what they're up to. But no, it's going to be a challenge. And it's going to be one of those things where Mullen is going to have to match firepower in the future. And to do that, he's going to have to show some results on the field. And, you know, he, 
the talent level at Georgia is higher than the talent level at Florida right now. And it has been over the past three or four years, not just this year. And this year just sort of widens the gap. But to be honest, Georgia's widening the gap on everyone. So yeah, I mean, the difference, the difference between Georgia and number two is probably about the difference between number two and number 10. So, um, you know, oh, I did a stat like that last week. Oh, <laughs> what was it? It was, you know, Georgia was number one, Florida was 14. And then I believe Whatever the gap was there for the the points there, it was the same from going from Florida at 14th to Syracuse at 50th, I think, <laughs> or something like that. I have to go back and look at, but I believe that was the 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 stat there. So yeah, this recruiting class is pretty top heavy when you look at Georgia and and Ohio State um, up there at the top, and you know. Kirby's done a good job. You tip your cap to him, and then you go out and you beat him on the field, and that way the guys come and want to play to Florida, want to play for Florida. Yeah, and there we go. That's what we're going to have to, you know, until the cover gets there, you know, we'll have to hope uh, what we've banked on Mullen being a great game day coach uh, comes into play there. So let's move to FSU, who came in at 11 in the 24-7 composite rankings. Like Florida, they signed no five stars. Uh, and as our uh, other co-host Bill mentioned on Twitter this week, it's the first time that's happened since 2007, where FSU did not sign a five-star. FSU – did sign one more top 10 position player than Florida with six signees, but did fall two behind Florida with 11 top 20 position players. So, you know, going at the stat here and looking at FSU, yes, they did finish higher uh, than, than Florida uh, in the overall rankings, but as I said, no five-star, they did not get a quarterback and the roster and this recruiting class kind of overall is kind of close when, when it's all said and done. Yeah, I think they struggled to bring in guys on the offensive side of the ball, and considering that's really the place where Florida State struggled, um, you know, you can understand why there might be a little bit of concern. The reality is the difference between 11th and 14th is really pretty negligible in these recruiting rankings. You never want to lose to your opponent. In fact, you really want to stomp them when they're your rival. So, you know, I'd, be, I'd feel a lot better if Florida was 11th and Florida State was yeah. 14th. But but it's relatively close. And, you know, the quarterback thing is is a big deal because, you know, Francois had, had a torn patella. And as somebody who's yeah. had the exact same injury when playing basketball, that is not an easy thing to come back from. My knee still creaks when it gets cold. And granted, I'm a whole lot older. Older than he is, but, but <laughs> and a whole lot fatter. But you know the 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 reality is is they don't have a backup, and so if yeah. he can't if he can't come back from that knee injury, or if he's not the same player as he was before that knee injury, and you know we see this a lot yeah. with guys who come back from knee injuries and struggle, and it sort of takes them two years to get back. Well, at that point, you know now you're sitting there with with Blackman playing or with somebody else playing who's not really an elite recruit, and and that could conceivably. Uh, be a problem for Florida State. But, you know, it's too early to make a judgment on that class, on this class specifically. But I would say that personally, I'm a little bit disappointed that with both teams having transition classes, that Florida State was able to exceed what Florida did, at least slightly. Yeah, I guess we'll dive into that too. You know, I've kind of talked behind the scenes of that. And I said, one excuse that I guess could be thrown out there, but you weren't really buying it too much was <laughs> you know, Willie Taggart being head coach at USF for a, a few years and already having some relationships in the state of Florida. And then also recruiting many of those same guys up to Oregon. Hey, even got some of them to commit to Oregon uh, all the way from the state of Florida. Of course, he comes out here to FSU where I think he's already had a little bit more uh, time to build relationships than what Dan Mullen did at Florida. So that, that's – and look, FSU still had more success on the field recently in these last few years and still more, more to point to, uh, not necessarily Tiger himself, but the, the program FSU. So you know, I, I can buy it a little bit. I, I can see where 
some of these recruits still feel more comfortable with Willie Taggart than they do Dan Mullen. Now, I don't think I, that, that's not an excuse to me moving forward, but I can see why it is in 2018. Yeah, you know, I mean, I personally, I personally think that if Florida wanted Taggart, they could have gotten him after the after the whole Chip Kelly fiasco went on, and they decided oh, to I, go. And, I, I can I, I can confirm that. Yes, and, and they decided to go with Mullen. And so there's no excuses. You you know you you brought in you brought in your guy, and he got beat in the first and uh, slightly, but he got beat in that first recruiting cycle. Doesn't mean he's going to get beat permanently. It doesn't mean that he's not going to build relationships and do better going forward. But you know, we came in 14th, they came in 11th. That's the reality. They even they had a higher average star ranking. Again, I think their class is probably off kilter a little bit on the defensive side of the ball, a little bit more defensive talent than offensive. I think Florida's class is more tilted towards the offensive side than the defensive side, which is one of the other yeah. issues I had with it. But, you know, I I don't think this class makes or breaks this rivalry. But, you know, when you really had a chance to put your boot down on the throat of your rival and you don't do it, you know, it, it's, it's a missed opportunity. Got you there. Uh, and I got some stats to kind of talk about what you just – Threw it, threw it out there uh, too for uh, kind of the offense and defense, and I'll get into that in a second. But uh, keeping on with the same thing, we're having next up Tennessee, who was also going through a transition class, and they end up finishing 20th in the team rankings with 22 signees. Uh, to fill out their class, they signed only two top 10 position players and four that were top 20 uh, at their position. Uh, would have had more if I counted JUCO players, but you know I was like as I mentioned, I just was using high school uh, recruits for this. So Florida had three more top ten players and nine more players that ranked in the top twenty of their positions than Tennessee. Yeah, you know it's interesting. I think Pruitt sort of did them a disservice by staying on with Alabama till the end. I mean, obviously <laughs> you don't want to bail with your players, but I mean, considering there was an early signing period that occurred, you know right before the national or right before the playoffs and all that sort of stuff. I mean, you can see how he was sort of working from behind and, you know, but I said, no, no excuses for Mullen. And I don't think there are any excuses for Pruitt. You took the job, you made the decision. Um, one interesting thing about Tennessee is that their national average over the last four years is 13.8, which is ahead of Florida's mm -hmm. at 14.5. And that's sort of owed to a top 10 class that Bush Jones brought in three or four years ago. So there, there's, there's some talent there at Tennessee. It'll be interesting to see what he can do with it now that he's there. Yeah, and I was surprised they hit the JUCO route so hard. And when I was looking at these numbers, and they they have a few top top end JUCO prospects. I think it was three or four uh, that that rank you know pretty high in, in JUCO rankings. But I mean, I was just looking at solely you know three to four year guys here. So that's uh you know I wasn't trying to cherry pick or anything, but I was just looking solely at, at high school players uh, here uh, for this exercise. Uh, last, I looked at Miami. Uh, they're an in state recruiting rival, and plus Florida opens up with Miami in 2019. So I figured it'd be good to look at them too. Um, and you know, Florida will see these guys on the field. Miami finished with the eighth ranked class with 23 signees. They had eight top 10 players at their position and 14 that ranked in the top 20. So they had three more that ranked in the top 10 than Florida and one more that ranked in the top 20 uh, at, at their position. So, you know, Miami did a, a nice job of, of bringing in some talent, but if you take where, you know, you look at just top 20, Florida was only one behind in them. Yeah, I'm not real worried about Miami, mainly because I watched, what, 20 years of Rick at Georgia. And this this recruiting class is right in line with the kind of talent he brought in at Georgia. I mean, the talent level at Georgia wasn't the problem. Now, obviously, Kirby's ramped that up a little bit. But the talent level at Georgia was never a problem. They were always recruiting right with Florida. In fact, in many, many times, mm -hmm. either right in line with them or a little bit better. 
and they still couldn't beat Florida. And and so it required bringing in Kirby Smart to 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 get over that hump. Particularly last year, boy, did they! But <laughs> but but that's really what it took to get over that hump. I'll be honest. Until Miami shows me that they can beat anyone of significance, I'm not going to be real worried about Rick. Um, you know, he's just he's got a track record of bringing in elite talent and doing less with it than what his fan base expects. And uh, you know, until he proves me wrong, that's probably what I'm going to expect from the Hurricanes. Yeah, even if that stays true, don't I think the only thing you can take about take from it is he's still keeping some of the South Florida talent away from FSU and Florida. So, you know, it, it could help or it could hurt Florida in a way of, you know, th- these are recruits that could help Florida compete with Georgia, Alabama, LSU, Auburn in the SEC. Yeah, that's conceivable. On the on the on the bright side, though, if Florida is playing Miami, I mean Miami's in the ACC, so they're going to look really good because you got Florida, <laughs> you got Florida State, Miami, and and Clemson, and then kind of Virginia Tech in the ACC as elite programs like Virginia Tech. I mean, I am a Hokie. I went there for graduate school, mm-hmm. but I don't consider them an elite program. I consider them a really good program. So you sort of got those four. And that's really about it. Whereas when you talk about the SEC, I mean, the top 10 are top 25 national recruiting programs. And so, um, you know, hey, maybe it'll help Florida to play a team like Miami, who who is artificially buoyed in the rankings because of their uh, because of their conference. So, yeah, it cuts both ways. At the end of the day, you got to beat Miami in recruiting. You got to beat Florida State in recruiting. And pretty soon we're going to have to be Georgia in recruiting. That's just the way it is. Absolutely. So I talked about a couple of those stats and I I went through today and I posted these on Twitter so you can go back and look at them uh, as well. But average player rating, this is using 24 seven sports. So average player rating for the 2018 class for skill position players. This was quarterbacks, running backs, wide receivers uh, and tight ends as well. Georgia led the way with 95.91 rating there. Miami with a 94.07 Florida 92.87 FSU 89.65. So as you were talking about the, how these classes were, were broken up, Will, you can definitely see that Florida's was tilted more toward the offense than the, even more so than FSU's. Would, as I said, Florida had an average rating of 92.87 and FSU 89.65. So, you know, it, it was you could clearly see uh, the, 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 the how it was laid out on the offensive side of the ball with Georgia at 95, almost 96 or a rating. Miami with a 94, Florida with almost a 93, and FSU with almost a 90. Yeah, I mean, I think Florida did an excellent job on the offensive side of the ball. I mean, they brought in a blue chip quarterback, a bunch of blue chip wide receivers, a couple blue chip running backs, a blue chip offensive lineman. Um, you know, when you look at what they did on the offensive side of the ball, I, I don't have any complaints other than, you know, there were there were some there was a one big fish out there and they couldn't land him. But you know, sometimes that happens. So, um, particularly when when you get beat by the guy who who comes in second in the national rankings overall, you know, for Ohio State coming in and swooping and bringing in bringing in Petit Frere. So. Um, you know, from an offensive side of the standpoint, I, I have no complaints about this class for Florida at all. I think they did a really good job. Certainly, I think their offense should be much improved because of the guys they brought in. Maybe not this year, but two years from now. And uh, I'm sure we'll get to that a little bit later. But uh, but I, I got no complaints about Florida on the offensive side of the ball. Yep. And then I moved to the defensive side. These were, you know, all offense. I just did skill players. Uh, for defense, this was overall defensive players here. So Georgia with 12 players had an average score of 93.47. Florida State with 11 players, 92.41. So a big number for the FSU, as Will mentioned. They, they, their class was slanted toward the defense. Florida with only six signees, because I did not count Randy Russell since he cannot play. 
they averaged out at 90.86 in Miami uh, with nine players at 90, basically at 90. So, you know, Florida, Miami, pretty equal. Uh, Georgia, 93.47. FSU, 92.41. I mean, it, there's actually, you know, classes were not that far off either. So, you know, FSU, uh, you have to be impressed with what they can keep stacking up on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, and that's been a trend over the last three years. So if you look, particularly on the front seven. So you know, I, I wrote an article three or four weeks ago that talked about defensive lines and building top five defenses through defensive lines and the, the front seven. And and if you look at McIlwain's recruiting from 2015 to 2017, Florida had zero top 300 linebackers the entire time. So their 24-7 sports ranking was 0.851. So the average national rank, that would have been around 1,050, would have been the average rank of the of the linebackers who were brought in in those classes. Florida State at the same time had five top 300 linebackers. Their 24-7 sports ranking was .898, and that would have been about 314 was the average national ranking for those linebackers. Um, defensive line, Florida brought in four top 300 players on the defensive line. The ranking was .892, would have been around 358th. Um, Florida State brought in nine top 300 players on the defensive line. That's and would have been around 148th as the average national ranking. So there's a reason why Florida State's defense was better last year. Um, obviously, the Seminoles struggled on, on the offensive side of the ball um, and and still had some breakdowns in the secondary. And, I mean, everybody enjoyed making fun of Derwin back there. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, from a recruiting standpoint, considering these two schools are almost identically – identically uh, situated in terms of who they're going after and the talent they're competing against a lot of the same guys. There's, there's a pretty big disparity on the defensive side of the ball between Florida and Florida state. And that widened. I mean, that widened during this recruiting cycle where, you know, Florida brought in, I guess, depending upon whether you want to call Andrew Chatfield, a defensive lineman or a linebacker, let's say you call him a defensive lineman. Well, then you've got two defensive ends and then a linebacker. They're all, they're all blue chip players but you got three guys who are coming on the defensive line. Obviously that average national rank is going to come up, but I do think there's a need to fill in those numbers. And that's what Mullen's going to have to do in 2019. It's going to have to be, um, he's, he's going to have to bring in significant talent on the defensive side of the ball in this next cycle. I agree. And another thing that's got to change, and this is really no, no fault of his own, but signing players in the state of Florida uh, and the number of uh, top 50 players in the state, According to 24-7, signed uh, to the following schools. This is how many. Miami signed 11 of the top 50 players in the state of Florida. So that's a big coup for them. But Florida did come in second with five. Um, FSU with five as well. Georgia signed four of the top 50 players in the state of Florida. Ohio State, Urban Meyer, still making a footprint in the state of Florida. Signed four top 50 players in the state of Florida. Alabama and Auburn both had three. If you move to the top 100, Miami had 15 players florida had eight if nine if you count randy russell uh there fsu had seven of the top 100 auburn with six of the top 100 alabama with four of the top 100 in the state of florida so you know i go back and also look at transition classes and, and how it broke out for florida in the past ron's look 2002 uh with 22 signees signed 14 uh oh this is overall state of florida prospects urban meyer in 2005 with 17 signees, signed 11 from the state of Florida. Must champ in 2011, signed 19 overall, 14 from the state of Florida. Michael Wayne, 21 overall, signed 15 from the state of Florida. And Dan Mullen with 19 overall recruits and signed 10 from the state of Florida. So 
definitely got to get uh, Will. I still think the recruiting strategy, if you're located in the state of Florida, is get the best you can from the state and then go cherry pick other states. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. I think, I think this may actually be where we're seeing the effect of the early signing period. So, you know, Mullen essentially had two or three weeks before, after he was hired, maybe four, to to convince people to come to Florida. And like I said earlier, eighty percent of the guys I think were signed. Uh, the top three hundred guys were signed on that early signing day. And so, if you look at what his absolute needs were. It was quarterback. That was who. That was who he had to go after. That was where he had to focus, and he focused on Emory Jones. And so, chances are he wasn't able to focus on the defensive side of the ball as much as maybe he would have liked, just because of that early signing period. I do wonder whether, if that hadn't been in place, whether he might have been able to expand both on the defensive side of the ball and in Florida, had he had an extra three, four, five weeks to to work on those guys. But he didn't have it, and I think that might be where we see the effect of the early signing period this year. Is that you know, those Florida guys had already decided to go elsewhere. They signed in December and there just weren't a whole lot of elite Florida guys left over who were interested in considering the Gators. The ones that were that, you know, Malik Langham flipped. So, you know, they were able to get some guys to come to Florida who were available. There just weren't that many guys who were available to have their minds changed. And and so it'll be interesting to see what happens next year when there's a full cycle and, and, and whether this starts to change. Because I agree with you, you can't make a living at Florida recruiting in North Carolina and Washington, D.C. And, and you, know, you can cherry pick guys when you find somebody who's a real special talent or somebody who's just want, has always wanted to play at Florida. But at the end of the day, Orlando, Tampa, Jacksonville, those are really going to be the places that Florida's going to have to win in, in, uh, from a recruiting standpoint to win on the field. Yeah. Langham's from, was from Alabama, though, right? He was, but at the same time, I mean, you know, it's one of those guys who was considering Florida. So, um, okay, or okay. was willing to consider Florida. I mean, yeah. obviously not a Florida guy, but, um, you know, my, my point was more the guys who were available and willing to consider Florida were relatively. No, no, good news, and, and, uh, and, you know, <laughs> thankfully he was willing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then, you know, going back and looking at it as well, you know, one of my favorite players in the class is Damian Pierce, you know, running back from Georgia. So, as I said, you know, it's okay. I think as long as you get the top, you know, some of the top players out of the other states, I don't think you go settle for a three star or anything. Uh, like if I say, it's cherry pick. You know, you do what Urban Meyer did. You get the best out of the state of Florida, and then you go to Virginia and get a Percy Harvin. You go to the DMV area and go get a Derek Harvey or a Joe Hayden. You know, that's. That's how it should be done. So, yeah. Well, and I'll be uh, I'll be honest. Not once have I looked at Kirby's recruiting class at Georgia this year and said, "I wonder if he got everybody in Georgia." I was worried that he was getting everyone, but I wasn't worried that he was getting everyone in Georgia. Um, you know what he'd do? He'd go. He'd go and go cherry pick South Florida too. Yeah. Well, and and I'll I'll tell you the thing the thing that should concern people, or at least the thing to watch, is a lot of those Florida recruits you mentioned were going to Ohio State. Or we're yeah. going to Alabama, we're going to Auburn. Like those are programs that Florida is going to have to keep out. Again, particularly in that Orlando, Tampa, and Jacksonville area, you know, you're, you, sometimes people are just going to say, "Hey, I want to go play for Saban," and and you know, you're going to lose some battles. But at the same time, you got to have those areas locked down. And and you know, up in the Panhandle, let Florida State battle with Alabama for those guys up in the Panhandle. Lock the guys down close to home who've always wanted to be Gators and just really need the program to be showing progress in the right direction to pull the trigger. Yeah, and you know, bias here, but really get this, really get the city of Jacksonville back, <laughs> just just for me. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I mean, you know, it, it's important. It's it's not necessarily a huge hotbed of college football right. compared to like exactly. compared to compared to Miami and even compared to yeah. Tampa and Orlando. But at the same time, what's the other option if you're living in Jacksonville? I mean, if right. if Florida is a program that's booming, those guys are all going to want to come to Gainesville, and and Mullen needs to take advantage of that. Yeah, yeah especially that whole you know first coast area because when you know when Florida was what. Uh, Urban Meyer's second year, and they got the guys from Nice, you know, Tim Tebow, and, and from St. Augustine. And those are the guys, you know, this whole first coast area. So hopefully, you know, you've had Trinity Christian and Bowles, the private schools kind of dominate. You have Reigns on the on the public school uh, side of things. But, you know, there, there are some athletes that are still coming through this area, and it would be nice to see uh, the Gators get back in uh, to it. But when, when Florida was cre- recruiting the area of Jacksonville well, uh, you know, is back in these past coaches and these, especially under Ron Zook. You know, I'm gonna go back and we'll, we'll go look at some transition classes here. And you know, we, we're talking about National Signing Day and, and these top tier players, Florida signs. You know, and it's top tier players that usually make an impact early. But if you go back and look at transition classes, there are not a lot of freshmen that come in year one and make a big impact. And I'll go back and start with Ron Zook class in 2002. Headlined by players like Seatric Face and Deshaun Wynn, Gavin Dickey, Randy Hand, Jamal Cornelius, Channing Crowder. You also had Reggie Lewis, Ray McDonald, Dallas Baker. But think about those guys. There was very little contribution from these players in their freshman years. Uh, you know, a few were very instrumental in winning that 2006 national championship, but many of these guys redshirted and went on to make their names later in their careers. Yeah, and I think that's the that's the pattern you're going to see when you look at all of these transition classes for a couple of reasons. One is that you know there isn't this group of four or five five star guys in any of those transition classes, and then the other is is that in many cases there was an awful lot of talent when they came. I mean, when Spurrier left, it wasn't mm-hmm. as if it was a destitute program that Zook was taking over. When Urban Meyer came, it wasn't as if it was devoid of talent. It was just Zook inexplicably lost a couple of games every year. He shouldn't when Muschamp took over. I mean, the, the cupboard was full. You maybe had some discipline problems, but the cupboard was full. It was just a matter of, you know, it was a matter of harnessing all that talent. And then when McIlwain took over, I think we could say the offensive side of the ball was a little bit, was a little bit depleted, but the defensive side of the ball had some studs. <laughs> and so, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're a true freshman coming in, you really have to be special to play. And, and I think you can see that even looking at some of the teams this year, that, that the five-star guys are the guys who really get out there and make an impact early and get an opportunity to make an impact early. Um, you know, and the, and the four-star guys don't necessarily get that opportunity right away. And, and, you know, that's kind of what the star rating is supposed to do. I mean, the, a five-star player is a guy who's supposed to make an impact right away. And is like, a can't miss NFL prospect. A four-star player is a really good player, but it's not always someone that you would expect to come right in and, and make an immediate impact. Right. And Will, uh, since I started with 2002 and Ron Zook there, did you have, did you have the 2003 or that second, the second class after and see if they made more of an impact? Yeah, so if you look at 2003, you got Andre Caldwell, Chris Leak, Jarvis Moss, Joe Cohen, Chad Jackson, Reggie Nelson, uh, Marcus Thomas, Earl Everett, and then Carlton Metter and Eric Wilbur. So you had a punter who was there for four years. You had offensive linemen who played role who played major roles in winning games. You obviously had Chris Leak who threw for 11,000 yards in his career. Um, and ended up and starting started and started his <laughs> freshman year as well. Um, you know, Jarvis Moss ended up with 15 sacks, first round pick. Chad Jackson had 1600 yards receiving in his career. Reggie Nelson, obviously, especially for that national championship team being the enforcer on the back end. Um, Earl Everett losing his helmet in that game against Ohio state. So, um, 
you you just go down. There's 11 guys who started from that 2000 and uh, from that 2003 class. And if you look at the 2002 class, there were only six guys who started. And you know, there, there's a significant difference. I mean, we talked last week that that Zook's first class, I think, was ranked like 11th, and his second class was ranked second. So there's a there's a significant uptick in talent going from year one to year two, but there was also a significant uptick in the career production of those guys. And and you know, that's really what I'm more interested in here. I mean. I don't think we should expect massive production from any of these guys day one. I think maybe what we should expect is one or two guys to come in and show some flashes. And then year two is when you'll really see these guys coming in and making a difference. But in year one, they'll be pushing the guys who are in there from a competition standpoint and making them better. So, yeah. And you, so you go back to Urban Myers and, you know, as good as a recruiter he was, his first class, that transition year, not much to speak of for guys who made instant impacts. But it was headlined by Ryan Stamper, Nine Boating, John Demps, David Nelson, Joey Monroe. And you know, the class had really no numbers to speak of, um, no kind of year one impact. You know, it's kind of surprising going back and looking at that class overall and how little came out of that class in Myers' first season. Yeah, so there were seven four stars. There were fifteen top three hundred players. So it was a pretty pretty decent set of talent. Um, you know, Ryan Stamper and David Nelson and Lewis Murphy are probably the three that I would pick out of there. Again, though only five starters, though there were only seventeen guys, but a relatively low amount of guys that I would consider starters. And one of them was Jonathan Phillips, a kicker. So really, you know, I mean, he's a starter, and and you know we have to keep that in mind with Evan McPherson coming in too, especially with uh, Pinedo leaving. But, uh, but yeah, only five starters in 2005, and not really giant yards or or production or anything like that. And again, if you go to 2006, <laughs> I mean, this is <laughs> there are guys, 11 guys I considered as making major contributions because I'm counting Brandon James. Um, you can't really count him as a starter. But man, that guy made a difference. But you yeah. get Marcus Gilbert on the offensive line. AJ Jones had 162 tackles. Lawrence Marsh had three and a half sacks and 50 tackles. Percy Harvin, 3,700 yards from scrimmage. Tebow, 12,000 yards uh, total. And Carl Johnson was a starting offensive lineman. Spikes, Jermaine Cunningham, Dustin Doe, and Riley Cooper. So, you know, you get sort of the same four or five contributors from that sort of four star rung. And then Meyer brought in four or five five-star guys, and those guys all contributed and all became stars and became stars pretty early. Yeah. Uh, if you fast forward to 2011, Will Muschamp's first class. That class was headlined by Jeff Driscoll, A.C. Leonard, Mike Blakely, Marcus Roberson, Jacoby Brissett. Um, you had some you know, DBs get some stats that year and meaningful experience. Lucius Parafoy, Pop Saunders, Marcus Roberson all had 17 tackles. Saunders had two passes defended. Robertson had one. A.C. Leonard caught eight passes for 99 yards as a true freshman. Uh, quarterback injuries played a part that year, so Driscoll and Brissett got some playing time. Brissett started versus LSU uh, going into Baton Rouge that year. So in 2011, you did have some some freshmen from Will Muschamp actually get on the field and, and get some stats. Yes, he had nine starters. Again, the theme of kickers runs through here again because Kyle Christie was was a was a you know three or four year starter as a punter. Excuse me, Hunter Joyer um, certainly provided quite a bit of um, quite a bit of help, especially in 2012 as the lead mm-hmm. back for as the lead back for Jones and and uh, you know like you said Purifoy, Gorman, Saunders, um, Trip Thurman, who started quite a bit on the offensive line over the course of his career. So um, solid, but again, 
if if Driscoll had turned out to be fantastic, maybe you look at this differently. But the fact that you brought in both Driscoll and Brissett, both guys transferred and both guys played better at the schools that they transferred to, <laughs> really sort of casts a pall on 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 this particular uh, on this particular class. And and then you look at 2012, and this is really where Muschamp hit it out of the park from a, especially from a defensive side of the ball. But you had DJ Humphreys, Jonathan Bullard, Dante Fowler, Brian Poole, Marcus May. Uh, Matt Jones, Damian Jacobs, Antonio Morrison, Alex McAllister, Brian Cox, and Austin Harden, um, which, you know, he was a starter. I don't know. <laughs> the, the theme of the kicker in 2012 falls on its face at that point. But uh, yeah, you just named so many NFL players out there. <laughs> oh, I know. And, and, and when you go through, when you go through all of the class, all of the second year classes, all of them have guys who play in the pros. And if you look at the first year, the transition classes, you don't necessarily see that. I think if I go back and look, I mean, Roberson got a cup of coffee. I think Purifoy went undrafted. Um, Driscoll's now with the Bengals. Um, I think David Nelson played a little bit. Lewis Murphy played mm-hmm. the pros. Channing Crowder, uh, Deshaun Wynn, and Seattle Faison got a little bit. He didn't play for very long. Yeah. So you're not really talking about a whole bunch of NFL you're not talking about significant NFL careers. Um, whereas when you look at these guys in the second year, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty stark, the difference. And then we go back to 2015, Jim McElwain in his first year. This is about the only transition class that had some impact players. Uh, and also the best one, probably in Antonio Callaway class was headlined by Martez Ivy, CC Jefferson, Jordan Scarlett, Antonio Callaway, Jordan Conkright. Ivy played in 12 games that year. was named freshman all SEC. C.C. Jefferson recorded 19 tackles his freshman year, three and a half sacks. Cronkite had 44 carries, four total touchdowns. Scarlett, 34 carries, averaged over five yards a carry. And, of course, Callaway uh, burst onto the scene, 35 catches for 678 yards, four touchdowns, had a game winner versus Tennessee, made plays in the return game also. Um, Now, it might have been by necessity, as Will, you mentioned, because the lack of talent that was on that side of the ball in the real must champ when Jim McElwain came in, but Jim McElwain, you did have the best impact players for a transition class. The offensive line was in shambles. So Ivy had to play, uh, but he did play well in his first season. The wide receiver position was, was lacking in playmakers and Callaway was the one player. Every defense feared, even as a freshman. So while it was kind of forced that some of these young guys had to play, they actually did make an impact once they got on the field. Yeah, you know, I I think uh, obviously Kelvin Taylor was the uh, was the was the bell cow back there at running back that first year for McElwain. Um, Ivy and Jefferson were top ten recruits overall nationally, and so you know that's why Bill and I harp so much, and you as well harp so much on star rankings. These guys make an immediate impact when you bring in a five star player, and you know people may complain about Ivy and some of his shortcomings at at left tackle, but as a guard that year, he was very very good. Um, Sharp is the one who struggled on the outside side and it makes me wonder a little bit whether the coaching might have more to do with the struggles on the offensive line than the actual players and their talent um certainly Callaway was a real bright spot that year um particularly with the play against Tennessee and some of his plays against Old Miss um <laughs> the, the sheen has sort of come off as as the off-field incidents have mounted with him and you know you wonder whether some of those things may have had an impact on his actual ranking coming out of school you know I, I don't know I, I don't remember but you know so one for sort of borderline four-star player really delivered um Cronkite and Scarlett their freshman year not a ton of carries um Cronkite was back there for pass protection mostly so um 
you know, and you got seven starters out of that class at this point, if you looked at it. Now, granted, we haven't gone all four years through, but Ivy, Jefferson, Scarlett, Callaway, Cronkite, and then Jabari Zuniga and, and Fred Johnson. Those are the guys who are started from that class. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, it, I, I think the theme is pretty clear that if you that the five-star guys started and made an impact. Um, some of the high four-star guys made a little bit of an impact early on. But if you're just sort of a top 200 four-star candidate, you're not usually making an impact year one. Um, and, you know, we'll see what happens from 2016. So if you look at that, if you look at that class, it's Tyree Cleveland, Chauncey Gardner, Felipe Franks, Freddie Swain, Josh Hammond, Jeremiah Moon, LaMichael Pirine, Brett Heggie, Voshan Joseph, and Jawan Taylor are the starters thus far who've come from that. So it's about 10. It's a, I mean, it's right in line with all the other ones. A lot of those guys are three stars. Um, you know, Juwan Taylor, Sean Joseph, Brett Heggie, and Michael Pirine are all three-star guys. So, um, plenty of plenty of contributions there. Um, but I wouldn't say, I, I wouldn't say the star power that we talked about with the other classes, where we're just naming NFL players all over the place. Um, some of these guys have that kind of talent, but uh, but I, I'd be surprised if if we're looking back on 2016 and saying, "Whoa, wow, that was a you know that was a that was a turning point for Florida." Yeah, you know, if you get like we said, if you, and that's one reason we did. It. If you go back and look at past transition class history, you wouldn't expect many. If it plays out like it has, you wouldn't expect many of these freshmen that Dan Mullen brought in uh, to make an immediate impact. You, you hope they end up being great players when it's all said and done. Uh, but there's, but that's not to say there, there's you know some freshmen that can that can't make an impact this year. Now the roster has some holes in it uh, that, you, and you can see Emory Jones, of course, make his market quarterback. Uh, Florida has had some running backs play well in their freshman years uh, in recent seasons. I think Copeland can make some plays at wide receiver. Linebacker depth is an issue, so you, can we see Chatfield help on the outside? Uh, the Gators could use a big-time playmaker at defensive end, and Langham already fits the mold even as a freshman. Um, we've had no shame in putting true freshmen uh, in the defensive backfield in recent years, so can Bernie, Dean, Huggins, maybe even Watkins if they switch his position, uh, make a mark back there. So while it's not common, for Florida to have many freshman contributors in transition seasons, there is a possibility for a few of these guys to make an immediate impact. Yeah. There's also been a little bit of discussion about the idea that Justin Watkins potentially could play a little bit of corner. If, if for some mm -hmm. reason um, Mullen wanted to put him back there. I'm um, certainly, you know, I already pointed out the the talent on the offense or on the defensive line and line linebackers for Florida, the recruiting has been a little bit down. And so, you know, those are spaces where people can fit in. And then, you know, I've gotten yelled at quite a bit by people on Twitter about not counting Van Jefferson and Trevon Grimes in the recruiting rankings. Um, but Van Jefferson was a really good player at Ole Miss last year. And so, you know, we may end up getting more, if he's, if he's cleared to play in 2018, we may end up getting more production from a first year wide receiver than we would normally expect. Just, just from a recruiting perspective, because he's not a first year wide receiver. Okay, you, can, you can put first year in quotations. <laughs> well, so, you know, and, and again, I, I think, you know, Noah Banks is a, is a Juco transfer at offensive tackle. Um, we've talked a lot about how the guard, the guard position could use some help. And so if he can slide in there and help on the offensive line, that might be a place where somebody gets some immediate run. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think there is going to be space. So Mullen strategically brought in a lot of high level talent, um, compared to the talent that McIlwain has brought in. So this recruiting class ranked on par from a blue chip perspective, from a 24-7 points perspective, from a ranking perspective with the last two classes that McIlwain's brought in. And so I think a lot of these guys are going to push for playing time just because they're just as talented as the guys that are coming in to try and replace. 
Absolutely. And Will, while this class may not contribute much to the, the results of the 2018 season, hopefully they contribute from 2019 forward. But it's going to be key um, you know, for Florida to up the recruiting ante moving forward uh, and to compete with Alabama, Georgia, Florida State, LSU uh, for national championships. And while we've laid out a little bit here on how important this 2018 class uh, is important for building the future, uh, on your site, readingreaction.com, you released your latest article where you used this class and more to show just how far Florida might be from competing for a national championship. Yeah, you know, I wanted to take a look and see what did Mullen need to do going forward in order to get to a national title? Because, like I said, I came off of the I came off of National Signing Day a little bit disappointed, um, but looking at all the numbers, saying, "Hey, for a transition class, this is pretty much what I should have expected." Um, so it's not his fault. I'm disappointed. <laughs> I'm just I'm just disappointed because I wanted some of those big boys on the on the on the back end of this of the class. And, you're, just, and, you're just being a negative Nelly. You're just being. Uh, a negative I mean, you know, that, that's that's what I do, man. You, you and Bill are gonna have to keep calling me on it because because it's gonna keep coming. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, I, I look to see what what happens to, when you look back at four the four years prior to a national championship. What kind of recruiting do teams typically have? And so if you look at it, the average national recruiting ranking for national championship teams from 2004 to 2017. So again, for the 2017 champions, I'm taking the 17, 16, 15, and 14 classes and averaging those together. And so they average a national recruiting ranking of 6.1. They average a conference recruiting ranking of 2.1, and they average 14.3 blue chip players. And so we're talking four and five star players. That's what they average is 14 of those guys with a national recruiting ranking average of, of 6.1. So um, when we say stars matter, this is what we mean is that the average national recruiting ranking, the four years prior to winning a national championship over the last 14 or 13 years is six. Um, so that, that's obviously Florida over the last four years is at 14 and a half. So that, so that means there's some ground to make up if Florida wants to be in the running every year for a national championship. Now that doesn't mean there aren't outliers. You'll hear people bring up Clemson all the time. And so Clemson won the national championship in 2016 and their national recruiting ranking was 12.8. The conference recruiting ranking, however, was 2.5. And I think that's important because 12.8 as a national recruiting ranking, puts you at fifth in the SEC over the last four years. Um, and Clemson was at two and a half in the conference. They also brought in 11.3 blue chips. So Clemson traditionally over the last few years has not signed 25 players necessarily. They have signed, they have brought in elite guys as part of their class, you know, almost always 50% blue chip ratio. So, you know, if they're bringing in 22 guys, 11 of those guys are blue chips. Um, they had a year a couple years ago where they only, I think it might've been last year, where they only brought in 14 signees and a bunch of, and a bunch of them were blue chip guys. So, um, so Clemson is out. Yeah, and, that, and that's one school where you can definitely say it's it's quality instead of quantity. <laughs> uh, well, the other thing is if you if you look at the top at the worst based on recruiting, if you look at the worst four teams to win the national championship, the worst by far is Auburn, who had two who had two recruiting classes that were below twenty in the four years prior to winning the national championship in 2010. Their national recruiting ranking, but they also had two top 10. So their national average was 14.8. The conference ranking average was six. They only had eight and a half blue chip players, but they did bring in this guy named Cam Newton, who won the Heisman Trophy and just put, and put up a 100 
182 quarterback rating while running for like 1500 yards. So, and, and that trend continues the whole way down the, the chart. So Auburn in 2010 has Cam Newton. Clemson in 2016 has Deshaun Watson, who finished second in the Heisman Trophy voting. 2004 with USC, they averaged an eight national recruiting rankings. That's the third worst team to win the national championship, averaged eighth. Um, and, and 10 blue chips, and they had Leinert, who won the Heisman Trophy, and then 2005, Texas, who beat the USC team, who had just brought in even more talent. They averaged a 7.8 for their national recruiting ranking and obviously had Vince Young at quarterback, and he would, came in second in the Heisman Trophy voting that year to Reggie Bush. So I don't know whether he wins or not based on yeah. uh, based on what the, <laughs> based on how that stuff's going. So, I mean, really, when you look at it, any team that's won the national championship has had a top 10 recruiting class nationally some point in the four years prior to winning the championship. And the vast majority of them have done it three out of four or four out of four years. The only team that's done it once is Clemson. Everyone else has done it three out of four or four out of four years before winning a national title. Top 10 classes are important. Yeah. And you know, we, we keep harping on it a, a little bit. I know some people probably get tired of it, but that, I mean, that's, you know, when you look at the numbers and that's what they say. And look, when has Florida been their best? And when has Florida won national championships? We've seen it with our own eyes with the team that we follow is when they recruit well, when they're at the top of the national recruiting rankings, when they're bringing in five stars, when they're bringing in four stars. That's how you win titles, especially when you play in the SEC. As, as we'll mention, you have four or five teams right now that Florida has to be better than on the field. So why not make it easier on yourself by recruiting better, by getting the, the talent pool even better uh, than, than what it is right now? Make it easier on yourself. Yes, you can still have a great coach, but when you're you know, constantly fighting uphill with Alabama and now Georgia and LSU and Auburn, you know, it would be nice to, you know, with, 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 to see what Dan Mullen would be able to do with the type of talent we know Florida can get. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens in 2018, not necessarily just with Florida on the field, but I pointed out in the article that I'm going to be watching Texas. Because if you look at Texas's recruiting profile over the last three years, it's really close to what Florida's is. So obviously Tom Herman comes in last year, puts up a recruiting, the recruiting ranking was 25th, but he didn't have that many signees in the class. This year he's third. So he sort of is the model for what we want to see from Mullen. Now, obviously, Mullen was 14th here in this first year. We'd love to see him at first <laughs> next year with a couple more five stars than there are at Texas. But that's really the model that I'm that I'm looking for. If if Mullen can pull in a top three class next year, and if, if he can pull in 14 or 15 blue chips, well, now he's basically at the talent level that Texas has built up because Texas, Charlie Strong was a little bit better recruiter than Jim McElwain. And so they had a little bit more talent on the front end and then a little bit worse recruiting year last year. And now this year they brought in really sort of a monster class behind Georgia and Ohio State. And so um, I'm going to be really interested to see what Texas does. Obviously, the conferences are different. So Texas from 2015 to 2017 has averaged 1.3 in conference. Um, with very similar stats, they would have averaged 4.7 in conference in the SEC. So uh, clearly the conferences are different. Alabama and Georgia are a very different animal from a recruiting standpoint than anyone in the Big 12, even Oklahoma. But you figure now that uh, Baker Mayfield is gone, Texas kind of has an opening. Um, and that more than more than whether they are 
more than whether they they get by teams like Iowa State and things like that, I think what we really want to look at is the quality on the field. So if you look at Herman's first year, the defense improved from giving up like 40 points a game to giving up 25. And this class, he loaded up in the defensive backfield. And so if they can go from maybe giving up 25 to giving up 18, well, now they're going to go 10 and 2 instead of instead of 7 and 6. And, and that's, I think, what we want to see from Mullen this year is instead of the offense scoring 20 points a game, we want them to score 35 or 40. And then you figure in that second year with more talent coming in, he'll be able to really make a difference at that point. And another reason Texas is a good comparison is, look, they're in a talent-rich state uh, as well and pretty much the flagship school in that state, much like Florida. So if Florida can show improvement in year one, be able to to point to some things on the field, then you can sit there and and look at that. Texas did have a little bit of um, – uh, better luck with A&M going through a coaching change. So they were able to take uh, advantage of Kevin Sumlin uh, getting replaced by Jimbo Fisher. But you know, you're know, you also in a talent-rich state to where you can quickly reload the roster with, with top-tier talent. So if there's something on those in 2018, Mullick can point to, hey, look, Emory Jones is, is a true freshman quarterback, and I've turned this offense around enough to where there's enough pieces to work with. Or Felipe Franks is quarterback, and look, yeah, this is a guy that struggled before in the previous class, but now he's able to – I've turned him around, and, and now he's a quarterback we can count on moving forward, and, and the running game's going. And you have Jacob Copeland and, and uh, Kadarius Toney, you know, you see these the, these types of big plays you've come to expect from a Dan Mullen offense. And look, you go to the other side of the ball, and Todd Grantham's improved this defense enough to where you know you have linebackers who now want to come in and play and can you know highly rate linebackers because they see maybe a little bit of the void of talent at that position. They can come in and make an impact early. So I think there's a lot of things you can point to and compare Florida to Texas, and, and mainly because it's a flagship school in a you know a state riddled with talent, and it's and it's a quick rebuild if you have something to point to positive on the field. Yeah, I mean optics matter, right? And and as as much as we're numbers guys and we love we love breaking it down, saying, oh, you know, what you what you're seeing on the field isn't real because this number behind it, you know, <laughs> isn't sustainable or something like that. At the end of the day, no 17 or 18 year old who's considering Florida cares about our numbers. <laughs> what he cares about is is Florida scoring points? Does it look like it's fun? Is the fan base complaining because it's just slow and stodgy and there's no improvement and no progress? And, you know, people complain about the negativity of Florida fans, but at the same time, on the other side, you get all the positivity when things are going well. And so um, that, if Mullen can show progress on the offensive side of the ball, and, and I said this a little bit last year, um, I think in reference to the Texas A&M game, like losing 19 to 17 just felt terrible for a lot of different reasons and it felt different than if Florida had lost 45 to 42 like or 45 to 43 whatever a two point loss 19 to 17 when the offense just couldn't move at all felt so it was just groundhog day and mm-hmm. so losing 45 to 43 will just feel different and i think that uh, there can be a Again, I think there are a lot of people who right now will say some negative things about the Florida fan base. I don't necessarily agree with them, but I know that they'll say negative things about the Florida fan base. I think that that tidal wave of positivity when you start to see progress is going to be a positive reflection of the passion of the fan base as well. So, um, you know, optics matter in this case, and <laughs> and we can we can talk about stars and numbers, and you know, we can break down what somebody's doing against a cover two and all that sort of stuff. At the end of the day, if they're scoring forty points, people are going to come. If they're scoring twenty one again, um, you know, we'll be we'll be screaming for the offensive coordinator to 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 be uh, shipped out of town just like we were for Nussmeier. 
Yeah. Well, offensive coordinator is Dan Mullen too. So. <laughs> 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 well, well, we'll give him a year at least, right? <laughs> uh, well, I threw out a poll, uh, a poll, poll question yesterday. Uh, you want to get to some uh, listener comments on that poll? Yeah, man, that'd be great. Uh, so I threw out the poll question: How would you grade the class of eighteen? That how would they, how would you grade that class of signees uh, for the Gators? And I gave a letter grades uh, to choose from. And 69% out of 1,300 votes gave the grade of a B for this class of 2018 for the Gators. 27% gave it an A, 3% a C or D, and 1% an F. Uh, that's probably Coach Chomp or somebody giving that 1% there. So uh, <laughs> uh, uh, some comments here. Uh, Dustin Woolbright, uh, not sure. We can realistically ask more of Mullen for a transition class. I'd have to give it an A using the transition curve. Won't be so going forward, but two months only allows him to do so much. Um, how do you see that, Will? Because I know you said you, you've expressed a little bit a little bit of disappointment, but do you grade this class on a curve as well because of a transition class? No, absolutely not. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I give it a B. I give it a B. I mean, I look at it and I say there are, you know, they're bringing in with, with Russell out, there's 18 signees. You got the two transfers coming in. You're bringing in quite a bit of talent. There are blue chips at every spot that they're bringing people in. It's very positive compared to other transition classes, but we aren't playing 12 teams that had transition classes next year. And so, um, you know, so you grade this like, yeah, we have some, there are some issues for Florida from the transitioning coaching and all that sort of stuff, but other people have issues in terms of injuries and transfers and all that sort of stuff as well. So, you know, it's, it's top 15 talent at this point from, from the last four recruiting classes. And, you know, that's how I'm going to grade it on the field. 14 is not where Florida needs to be. So it's a B for now and we'll see where it goes next year. I mean, if he's top five next year, then that'll be an A. There we go. Uh, some more comments here at Holiday Styles 2K uh, NY Hitta on Twitter. Also, a happy birthday to him. He asked me to give him a shout out. Uh, so there. So uh, he was getting his comment in the show anyway. Then I reached out. So uh, happy birthday uh, to him. But he gives it a B minus uh, because uh, missed on Nicholas Petit Friere. That was a must get. No excuses. Uh, Tommy Callahan. Highest rated transition class by player ranking of any Florida coach in the modern recruiting era. Got to give it an A. Josh Emery, I'd give it an A for the transfers. DeLance, Grimes, and Van Jefferson. Without the transfers, I'd give it a B for missing one more blue chip at offensive line, defensive line, and linebacker. Patrick Smith, considering the amount of work he had to do in such a short time to get this class back on track, it's an A for me. As long as the pattern holds for second-year classes, hopefully we'll be an A-plus class next year. Ben Woolbright. Uh, any other year, this would have been a B, but I'd say an A minus considering it's a transition year. The entire coaching staff changed, and they were strategic by not taking prospects just to fill spots. They know what they want to do and didn't waste numbers on projects. Uphill battle played wisely. A couple more here. Dan Cigar Man Mulligan at Trey Moo. Uh, give it a B minus. Lack of elite defensive players. The last two classes had me worried. I think coach did well on the offense and we'll turn it around, but I can say I'm not concerned with the direction of the defense based on the talent we have there. Uh, Supreme doom at ravenous doom. Last one here, considering it was a transition class. It was a great recruiting class with a lot of talent. However, I would have liked to seen some more talent added to defense other than safety. It will be interesting to see 
what they do with some of those safeties and if Watkins will move to cornerback. So we'll got a you know a good sprinkling there uh, of thoughts from our listeners there and uh, thank them uh, thank them for uh, sending everything in here uh, and there you know we we a lot of that we've talked about too from of course the, the lack of defensive uh, numbers and wanting some linebacker numbers some cornerback numbers maybe Watkins will move uh, Mullen did say in his press conference you know his signing day press conference that. Watkins has been known as a lockdown corner, but also a guy as a also a playmaker with a ball in his hands. So, you know, maybe uh, you know we'll see what happens here. But I wouldn't mind if he stays at receiver because I, I like him as a playmaker at receiver. We broke his game down a little bit right after he committed. Uh, but if Florida needs him at cornerback, then you know I can see it a move that, that would be well worth it. Yeah, I mean they've got the four wide receivers they're bringing in, all the talent they have there already. Um, you know. I, I know I get accused of being negative here, especially by you guys specifically, but a bee's not no, I'm bad. Just, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> I know. A bee's not bad, right? A bee is not terrible. I, I don't think it's appropriate to say, hey, this is a slam dunk, because I don't think it is. I think it's very, very good, but it's not it's not elite. And I and I think that's where we are. Now the good news is is that um is that last year and the year before and the year before that. I wouldn't have given bees. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, we're, we're improving and I think we're heading in the right direction um, from the standpoint of where the defense is though. Last year, Florida on the past defensive side of the ball, 105th in the country, giving up 8.0 yards per attempt against FBS opponents. And, and so there's some holes there and, and those are things that are going to have to be filled and, there's going to be quite a bit of scheme change. I know Gator Critic put out some stuff pretty good on Twitter today about yeah. uh, about some of Grant Grantham's schemes. Not really running a three four, more of like a more like a three three five, and and you know that's kind of what you got to do in college football to get your uh, get your athletes on the field. I do think it'll be a good change for Florida though to be able to have. Um, more athletes on the field rather than necessarily four defensive linemen, and that sort of plays right into guys like CC Jefferson. So. Um, you know, it's a good step forward for Florida. It really is, and uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the progress that we're going to see or that we hope to see is going to be dictated by whether the offense can score. And again, I'm okay losing the game 45 to 42 if it means that we bring in elite guys next year because they see the progress. So, um, you know, whether or not Florida goes seven and six, nine and four, or nine and three, whatever the end, up, whatever the record is next year, just Progress. We've been talking about that for a year now, Dave. Progress. <laughs> progress. That so, was my key word for the 2017 season. So I guess anyway. I, I guess we'll keep it going for 2018. <laughs> well, you know, we 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 got to wait until September to see it. So it's gonna be it's gonna be a long off season talking about all this stuff. But uh, spring going will be here before we know it anyway. So it's it's a good time. Man, it's like you read, read my mind, Will. Uh, I was going to talk about spring here. You know, Dan Mullen did have the his talking to boosters after signing day last week, and you know, I've kind of picked up on something, of course, and it was is a phrase that he used. But uh, you may have seen the hashtag that I've been tweeting out like crazy the last few days, and I'm going to do it to the spring game just because I think it'd be kind of neat to see under Dan Mullen's first year uh, to hashtag pack the swamp for the spring game. So. You know, you guys have really taken it on uh, as well and sharing uh, the hashtag Pack the Swamp. So, you know, let's keep it going. Let's get the spring game filled up. Uh, it would be nice to see the Swamp with, you know, 85,000, 90,000 fans uh, in the stands for a spring game, much like Georgia did uh, in, in uh, Kirby Smart's first year. Uh, so, it's look, and one thing I'm happy about it is, hey, it's not Masters weekend this year. For the first time in forever, it's the Florida spring game is not the same weekend as the Masters. So, uh, you know, that's kind of, kind of, uh, I'll take that as a as a plus for me. Of course, I'll be there anyway. 
Uh, but you know, it would uh, it would be nice to see. You know, I've had a lot of fans ask if if some of us will be down there, if we'll be tailgating. Uh, so there's already a lot of interest. But after Dan Mullen's uh, booster uh, function after signing day uh, last week, you know, I thought it would be kind of neat to to hashtag pack the swamp on social media. Yeah, man, this could be a great time. My, I wish it was Masters weekend. My daughter has a uh, orchestra, con- her first orchestra concert <laughs> the Saturday of the spring game. So I don't know. I may have to convince her that going to the spring game is more important than an orchestra <laughs> concert. We'll see. My, um, we'll see whether my wife buys into that or not. But uh, I don't no, think man, so. it, it's 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 going to be a blast, man. I mean, this is one of those things where, um, you know, one of the, one of the big one of the big downsides to, especially after the Michigan game last year was just, you know, you even saw it with McElwain. There just wasn't really any hope around the team anymore in terms of, you know, we kept, we kept waiting for something to turn the corner, kept waiting for a spark and it just didn't really ever happen. And, and, you know, there's hope around the program now with Mullen. There's hope that he's going to be able to turn around the offense. There's hope that he's bringing in the recruiting class. It's really very, very good. Um, you know, there's hope around the fact that they're going to be switching up the defense a little bit. And so, you know, it'll be more attacking than it will be read and reaction. So, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens and, and certainly um, can't get enough of this stuff. man. So the spring game can't come yeah. soon enough. That is true. That is true. Ready, ready for it to get here. I guess practice will start in about a month or so. So uh, we'll be we'll be looking forward for, uh, for that. Will anything else, man, before we sign off? Uh, man, the only thing is, is this week I'm going to be doing a Q and A with with uh, fans. So I'll put something out on Twitter pretty soon. Oh, and if, if nice. you've got if you've got any uh, any questions you want me to answer, anything you want me to look a little bit deeper into, um, you know, there will be a few that are quick hitters, I'm sure, but there might be some that turn into complete articles if if that's what you guys want. So yeah, I just really like to engage with the audience and send it my way, and and we can have some fun with it. Yeah, go to readreaction.com for that. Uh, you can sign up for uh, Will's. Uh, you can newsletters there that 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 will forward uh, the articles to you, or you can I guess send them to him on, on Twitter too, right? Will at Will Miles SEC. Yep, yep. I, I don't spam you. I send you out something once a week, and I just sort of give you a reminder that the that the podcast is out there, and give you a reminder that there's a few things on the site, um, and and certainly uh, I post everything I write on Twitter and Facebook. So. Um, you know, come take a look, see what you, see what you see whether you enjoy it, and and give me your feedback. I enjoy hearing from you, and even even the negative responses I enjoy. Um, I try to post the comments as long as they're not vulgar. I'll I'll post the comments. <laughs> there we go. Remember, you can find Gators Breakdown on NewsForJacks.com, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, all those ways to get Gators Breakdown. Uh, as I mentioned just a second ago, you can find Will Miles on Twitter at Will Miles SEC. Our other co-host Bill Sykes. You can find him on Twitter at Real B Sykes. I'm the host of Gators Breakdown, David Waters. You can find me on Twitter at GatorDave underscore SEC. It's been a fun one. Uh, guys and girls, thanks for listening to Gators Breakdown.